The dynamic trio, Pete, Sue and Tony, will be here at 5.15 with another edition of Magpie. But first of all, here's a story from the series Fireball XL5. ATV's introduction to the Fireball XL5 episode Flying Zodiac from Thursday the 5th of November 1970. Greetings, podcasters. Welcome along to another Fanderson Spectacular. I'm Ros Connors, and coming up in this edition... If you were a look-in reader back in 1977, you may remember a competition to design a space city. The prize, the chance to meet Jerry Anderson at a Blackpool exhibition. I'll be chatting with the winner of that competition. And from Thunderbird 6 to Neighbours and beyond, I'll catch up with Century 21 actor and voice artiste Gary Files. So let's put on the anti-gravity boots, strap in and take off with Fanderson podcast number 9. My first guest on uh, this podcast today is uh, somebody who will be no stranger to you if you're on the Fanderson Facebook page because he posts there regularly. Um, I first caught his name when he appeared in Lookin magazine. Did you get Lookin back in the 70s? I used to get it every week. Uh, this person won a competition in Lookin. Oh, I was dead jealous because he got to meet our hero, Jerry Anderson. Mark Anthony Craig, model diorama maker i think is your title today welcome to the podcast mark lovely to have you here and i want to take you back to the 1970s right now fantastic competition you were the winner how did it all come about it all started when i first got to see space 1999 in september 1976 um for three years prior to that, my father, who was in the RAF, we'd been living in Germany. So I didn't get to see year one when it first came on in 1975. And so we, we'd come back from Germany. And I think it was that first Saturday, um, switched the television on. And this series called Space 1999 came on episode The Metamorph. And I fell in love with it, totally hooked. Um, and I, uh, living in that area for nine weeks, I got to see the first nine episodes of this the This was series. ATV, wasn't it? So this was ATV Midlands, yes. yes. Yeah, and um, so I found uh, Look In was doing um, a, a comic strip and had a, obviously a cover feature with Martin Landau and Catherine Shell on, which caught my eye. So I started getting Look In um, because obviously anything to do with space 1999 I loved and as those fans who also bought looking at that time will remember Jerry Anderson had started a column in it um, where he was answering uh, oh, yes. letters yes. from viewers if you remember absolutely right yes and he and looking decided to run a design a moon city competition well I'd have, I'd been quite inspired by obviously space 1999 and the futuristic designs the idea of what was the future going to be like and i was of a fairly sort of architectural mind even then as an impressionable 13 14 year old um trying to doodle sketches of what i thought futuristic buildings would look like the series inspired me that much so when this competition came along it was as if as if it had been tailor-made for me so i put some spent pencil sketches together as my entry and sent them off. 
And then it was a few weeks later, I had a letter back from um, from um, Lookin uh, congratulating me, saying I'd won the competition. And obviously I was going to get to meet Jerry Anderson. Oh, how who, surprised were you with that? I was dumbstruck because I'd actually already written to Jimmy Savile. Jim will fix oh, it. the infamous Jimmy Savile. <laughs> I know. I'd ask, could you please fix it for me to meet Jerry Anderson? Well, here it was. I'd won the competition to do exactly exactly that um my my dad was dead impressed um and as part of my prize what came was um a dinky eagle a transporter i'd already got one by the way at that stage i'd had i'd had one um for um for christmas so because obviously this competition was in was it spring 1977 i, I also got uh, tim heald's book the making of space mm. 1999 and and then obviously there was the um train tickets then came for my father and myself to travel to Blackpool we were living on Anglesey at that time uh, oh so you'd moved you'd moved we'd moved from... yes, yes. We'd moved. unfortunately to there an is area a story kind of... about this as well isn't yes, there yes there is HTV uh, HTV Wales the region I was in we did not buy year two at that stage and refused to do so so after having seen just nine episodes of Space 1999 I'd won this competition and my dad and I travelled to Blackpool yeah. and Jerry himself met us at Blackpool Railway Station. Wow. And we couldn't get over how tall he was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a limousine waiting outside and we went with Jerry in it to the Blackpool Tower Gardens uh, to their executive boardroom where we had lunch. And of course, so we sat down to lunch there with Jerry and mm. other people from the Blackpool Tower Company. And um, uh, it turned out over lunch in discussions and I, I had us filled with questions about Space 1999. Was there going to be a third series? Yes, it had wrapped Jerry. production by then, hadn't it? By then, Jerry, they already had the news that it had been cancelled by ITC. Were you disappointed um, by that? Very, Absolutely. And of course, it was only years later that I found out that the reason that uh, the, the money was taken, many people seem to think, and they always go on about this on Facebook, the money was taken to fund Raise the Titanic mm. film. No, it wasn't. The money was taken to pay for Return, Return of the Saints, Saint. yes, which exactly. had gone over budget on its early location filming in Italy. And Lou Grade had decided to put the money into that instead. Now, Jerry was bitterly disappointed. And um, in when we so when we were having lunch, my father, who was still then in this twenty seventh year of the REF, Jerry had done his national service in the REF before he got into film, the film business, and so on. Started his career, and of course, my dad had started his. RF career doing national service and the two of them had a whale of a time talking about the good old days national service RAF and all I wanted to say was what what what, what about space 1999 what was going to be in this <laughs> blah 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 so they talked about that a lot they also talked about Thunderbirds a lot because my father was an aircraft engineer mm. and so he was talking to Jerry um, about whether or not the Thunderbirds craft would ever in real life been able to fly or not. And they talked about that for ages. And one of the things... Especially that, um, Thunderbird 2 with its wings exactly. pointing forwards. And one of the things I remember was the, my father discussing with Jerry was that it could be said to Jerry, if you had the money yourself to make whatever you wanted to do, what would you, what would you do? What type of series would you make? And he said... He, he always aspired to make live action Thunderbirds. Yeah. And making it then, obviously in 1977, my father said to him, but you'd have one problem with that. He said, the Tracy Island base was supposed to be in a secret location and the rest of the world weren't supposed to know when the Thunderbirds craft lifted off, took off onto the, on their missions. He said, and my father said to him, with modern satellite technology, that would be a lot more difficult for them to do. And Jerry said, you've got a point there. And he said, I hadn't really thought of that. Yes. Could you uh, imagine it today, uh, Mark? Could you imagine it today with all the CCTV cameras that we've got everywhere? Uh, exactly. Scott's, Scott's automatic camera detector would be going off all the time. It'd be going off constantly, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. It would be. <laughs> but I mean, amongst the questions to do with Space 1999, I did ask Jerry was um, one in particular, I remember, eagles. They were eagles getting damaged every 
so often because not having seen the rest of the series, I didn't know yes. just how well, many were Alan, getting Alan Carter, he crashed so many times. <laughs> so did uh, Commander Koenig. Commander Koenig crashed more in the series than Alan Carter did. You got you got to watch one of those uh, Chris dialect um, videos on you know on YouTube to see him count the number of crashes, and it's actually Koenig who crashed more than Alan. But we digress. The question was, where do they always seem to get replacement eagles from? And Jerry said that had a third season been mm. made, it had been his intention to answer this very question, which he frequently had in letters from looking uh, readers, is how, how do they do mm. it? And he said he wanted to show that next to the hangars underground were storage bunkers where eagle parts were stored and that whenever the maintenance crews needed to repair an eagle, they could go and take new parts out of the stores or if they needed to build an eagle from scratch they had all the parts there necessary stored on the base in those hangars uh, to rebuild total yeah. new eagles if they wanted to so it's th that sort of conversation that we had did you discuss uh, the topic of HTV not showing the second series in your area Yes, it did. And Jerry was disappointed at that stage. But that, that was the early days. That was early 1977. And so there was still a chance that HTV might pick it up, you know, in the next year or mm. so, which they didn't. Not until 1984, as it turned out. But uh, yeah, he, he was bitterly disappointed. And, and later I did write to Lou Grade himself around about 1980, 81. And he also voiced me in a lovely reply letter I had back from him, his utter frustration with HTV. And I think Southern... Southern it was, was Southern the other region, show, yes. didn't show by year two either. And that was one of the reasons that influenced ITC, again, not to go down the route of a third season, yeah. because obviously they'd had a difficult time trying to sell the first six, first series to the American networks as it was. And when in year two's case, there were even some of the ITV network regions who weren't interested in mm. buying it, that was ringing alarm bells for ITC. So I also probably put down HTV and Southern's response to year two as being equally responsible for that decision. I've got a letter to read to you here, Mark, which I don't know if you all have heard this before, but I can quote you a letter that somebody called T. Wallace wrote to HTV expressing their frustration about Space Series 2 not being shown in HTV. It was in the Bristol Evening Post in 1979. So from T. Wallace, and I quote, I wonder what HTV have against science fiction and comic characters. There's one whole series of Space 1999 which HTV haven't shown. As far as I know, every other ITV region has screened the series and most have repeated it to some extent. Yet despite it being a British programme, HTV don't show it. Now that's just part of the letter to HTV and there is, Mark, a response. From somebody called Robert Simmons, HTV West, Head of Press and Public Relations. I quote, We share this viewer's distaste for a welter of foreign imports, especially in the field of children's entertainment, the programme area with which he is most concerned. Now, the letter is referring to some programmes at the time, Superman, The Fantastic Four, Super Friends and Batman. But then we come on to the topic of Space 1999 and it says, I quote again, HTV prefers to create family drama of its own. Kidnapped was one recent example. There are many others. Let me answer specific points. The first series of Space 1999 was not a success in this region. In consequence, we did not screen programme series number two. Now, there are more series mentioned here. The letter goes on. It did uh, produce a flurry of responses, all in favour of Space 1999. But how do you respond to that? It, it's very similar to the response I had from HTV. It might have been the same person. The name rings a bell, actually, because I wrote a number of letters to HTV back then in the late 70s, expressing my anger that they wouldn't show it. It was like, why? It's so unfair. A programme that's made in Britain is not shown to a large portion of the UK 
I just thought it, I just thought it was dreadful that somebody can make the decision not to show a programme that I myself and other people loved and wanted mm. to see. Well, they say it's not. It wasn't a success. You know how how would you respond to that? In some respects, when you look back on it now, that probably there's something in that because we know not everybody is a fan of Space 1999. And it, it is mm. a series which I think appeals to probably a bit of a niche audience. Mm. Even within we within the fandom have people who like year one and don't like year two. So I mean, that's bad enough as it is. But not having an um, opportunity to see it, though, is, isn't, really, isn't yes. really fair, is it? But of yes. course, we're not referring to fans, we're referring to viewers and we're talking about the general wider public here. And quite possibly, if a programme doesn't cut the top 20 in the first few weeks of it airing, it's obviously then considered not one of the uh, highest rated things. It's never going to be. So they'll probably shuffle it away for off-peak screening. And of course, if another series is made, they probably won't even bother to pick it up if, it, if the previous series hasn't been a success. Yeah, that's right. But my, my anger towards HTV continued for a number of years, mm. particularly in 1979. Well, you had a book published, didn't you? Your I own, did. Your first book published. Yes, I, when I was 16, I'd, I'd, I'd written a novel a, a couple of years earlier when I was 14, and my father sent it off to some publishing companies, and one decided to pick it up and run with it and publish it. And I remember it was um, early December 1979 when um, the postman arrived and my father said, it's a parcel and it's for you. And I thought, oh, what is it? And I opened it and it was 12 hardbound copies of my novel with all my own illustrations in everything. It was like, what have you done? Oh my God, you know, it was like, oh wow. Anyway, uh, shortly after that, once the school, my school headmaster got to know about it, he started contacting the media. Mm. And I had uh, Radio 4 contacted my mother and asked, could they come and interview me about having a novel published at 16? So they came and I did the interview for them. And a few days later, um, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I, was on my, I got I got home from school and my mother said um, so, uh, somebody rang from HTV. Uh, it's payback uh, time. Yes. <laughs> she said, she said uh, they're, they're coming up. They've come all the way up from Cardiff. Now, in those oh. days, to get from Cardiff to Anglesey was quite a journey. Why they didn't come from the Bangor studio, which was only 20 miles away, I don't know. But they come all the way up from Cardiff, which was about a four and a half hour drive in those days and she said um they're going to come back to the house at uh, at uh, half uh, five o'clock and they want to do an interview with you and i thought hang on a minute htv have they got a cheek <laughs> so when these guys turned up at the door i said i'm sorry i'm sorry but i don't want i i'm, I'm not going to give you an interview and they said well why not and I said, because... There's the punchline, folks. <laughs> I've asked HTV for years to show Space 1999. You wouldn't do that for me. And I am not going to give you an interview. I'm sorry, but no, the answer's no. And I shut the door to them. My mother went absolutely ballistic. She said, <laughs> how rude. How could you do that? And I said, I'm sorry. It's the principle of this. I said, I am not doing anything for HTV. And despite their protestations, and my mum went and opened the door to them and said, I'm awfully sorry, but I flatly refused to do it. And they said they understood and they had to drive the four and a half hour drive all the way back to Cardiff without their interview. Oh, dear. Mark, looking back at the looking competition once again, another question springs to mind. Why so few photographs? Yes. Um, when uh, we'd had that lunch with Jerry at the Winter Gardens, we were then taken by the limo again to the um where the museum you know the, the exhibition the space city exhibition was being held and we pulled up in the limo the look-in photographer was there outside to greet us because we stepped out and all the people walking on the pavement were all stopping to look who were we with the the camera camera flashing taking pictures of us um we got out we did some photos at the entrance and then we went up inside and jerry gave my father and myself a guided tour of everything so there were bits and parts of the sets and lots of models and costumes and props from the series and as we walked around because 
was Jerry was there with the photographer uh, who every so often say, can I take a picture of you doing this? So there's a picture taken of me and Jerry with my artwork next to us. Um, and then we were looking at some of the models. So there was the, uh, the mission of the Darians, the, the Daria spaceship, which had been converted um, later to... Into the, Infinity, wasn't into it? Into Infinity, yes. yes. Uh, the space station for that, that the Altaris took off from. So it was in that format. So there's a photograph of me with Jerry looking at that. So the looking photographer took these photos. And after an hour or so, um, Jerry had actually brought his first son, Jerry Jr., with him, who was there in one of the photos. Um, and he wanted then to go and spend some time with his son. So we said, thank you very much. And we were told, uh, you can now walk around the museum, you know, the exhibition yourself, and you can take more pictures. So my father got his camera out and started taking more pictures of me next to models. I was allowed to go over the barrier and sit inside the moon buggy and so on. And, and, and I was able to hold things that the public, most of the public were not allowed to do. When we got home and my father sent his film in to be developed, we discovered there was a fault with the camera. The film had all overexposed and not one picture had survived. Oh. So all I ended up with were the official photos, the four photos that look in printed and sent to me in an envelope and I still have them today. Well, they're good quality and at least you've got those as a memento. Looking back all these years now, because it was a long time ago, how do you feel about that event today? It still sits vividly in my memory. It was one of the wonderful experiences of life that I've had and I mean my father died a few years later 1984 he died when he was 53 I'm now 58 so I've lived longer than my father did so for me it's one of those wonderful memories not only meeting Jerry Anderson but one of the things I got to do with my father um, and so for me it's, it's just absolutely wonderful still it, it'll be in my head to the day I die well, I want to say a big thank you for coming on to this podcast to chat about your experience today and uh, reliving those days of HTV as well. And I do hope that you did eventually get to see all of Space 1999. You did, didn't you? Yes, HTV did pick it up in 1983. So I finally got to see some more of the episodes I hadn't seen and videotape them, of course, as many of us did in those days in the 80s with our trusty video recorders. But they stopped showing it after, I think, the 17th episode. So as far as Wales was concerned, they didn't have screened there terrestrially uh, the, re the last episodes of year two until the BBC screened them in the late 1990s. Mm. And then, of Although course, it's national then, isn't it? It, so. That's right, that was shown nationally, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and it was also then that I didn't get, uh, I, 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 did, I think at 1990 was when I actually got to see the final episodes. I found a collector who had them on videotape and uh, I asked him could he make copies of them for me, which he did. And they arrived the day I was going on holiday with the girlfriend I had then. We, we, we booked a cottage up near the Isle of Skye uh, on, on the western coast of Scotland. Uh, near Malague and so we took a video recorder with us and these tapes which had just arrived and we spent you spent your whole holiday watching Space holiday, 1999 yes, watching those last episodes of year <laughs> two of Space 1999 so from 1976 seeing the first episodes it took 14 years till 1990 when I got to see the last six episodes of year two. Isn't that an extraordinary story? And I, this going out on the podcast today, I wonder if there are other listeners, other members of Fanderson here that have got similar experiences or perhaps even more extraordinary uh, stories to tell. Once again, a big thanks to you for, for coming on today. And uh, Mark Anthony Craig on the Fanderson podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Here we are at uh, Fanderson podcast number nine. I'm delighted to say that I've got a very special guest that I know many of our Fanderson uh, listeners will be interested in hearing from. And uh, he joins me now, Gary Files, all the way from Hobart in Tasmania. I've got to say this is a privilege and a real pleasure. Having grown up, uh, Gary, listening to your voice on all of these programmes that Jerry made, it's a real privilege to have you here linking up to the UK 
Thank you very much. I mean, it's it's a great pleasure to be doing this, really, I suppose. Yes, it is. Now, the Jerry Anderson shows were an awful long time ago now. We're going to try and spark some memories about them. But your acting career really started way, way, way before then. And uh, from various points of the globe, your career has taken you. But it all started down under. It did, indeed. I uh, was about 16, I think, 17, something like that. And I did a show with a guy called Brian James who had just returned from England, where he'd been doing a medical show there, I believe. Anyway, this was called uh, Something Nine. I can't remember. It, it, was, a, it was about a doctor, and uh, Brian was playing the doctor. And um, in those days, when we started a show, uh, you had to keep going all the way through because the tape couldn't be cut. So that meant the entire show had to be done all in one big long take with the cameras coming and going and all that kind of stuff. And we almost got to the end when I was with my mother in the kitchen and uh, she was supposed to open the oven door and take something out. And the oven door wouldn't open. <laughs> so there was this... And, and, and people in the booth were going mad and were waving and all the rest of it. And it all ground to a halt. And we had to do the whole show all over again, an hour long. The whole show, not just one scene? Yes, the whole show. It was uh, quite an experience. It was sort of, oh, this is what it's like. You know, this is what television is like. Well, it was then, in any way. It's not like that now, fortunately, and things have yeah. moved on greatly. But uh, how yeah. did your work bring you all the way from... Australia. I think it was via Canada, wasn't it, to the UK? Yeah, it was. I, um, my father had said to me early on that I really had to have a trade. I should have a trade. And sadly, he'd gone through the Depression. So therefore, that was very strongly in his mind. And I started out as a lithographic artist. In those days, we used to do big posters that you used to see by the side of the road or on railway stations. And we would draw it by hand on metal plates and things like that. Much the same, let us say, as Toulouse-Lautrec. So by the time I decided that I would like to go to Canada and finish my apprenticeship there, uh, sadly, like Toulouse-Lautrec, um, lithographic art had gone. It was now all done in Canada, as I ended up in um, by a, a great big camera, a huge camera right. did all this, yes. So I had to learn something else. So thank God I had another uh, course that I'd been taking at night uh, as a commercial artist. So I ended up uh, in an advertising agency. Now, you wonder how can you go from an advertising agency into a theatre school? Well. I was always into amateur theatre and it was an amateur theatre company doing Rashomon in Toronto who won the local uh, provincial uh, drama festival and then were taken to Montreal for the final, the big final in Montreal, uh, which was adjudicated in those days by Michel Saint-Denis, who was a very experienced um, British and French uh, director. And um, we won. And as part of our prize, we got to see the theatre school that he was pushing in Montreal, which was a bilingual theatre school. And that was an amazing experience. And... Um, Anyway, <laughs> that really impressed me, and I thought, oh, I'd like to go to this. So I did. I made, a, I made an audition, and luckily I got in. And that started really professional stuff, really. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? And it makes you wonder what course your career might have taken had you not gone to Canada and done this, that you perhaps would have continued in the lithographic world or, you know, mm. or just amateur theatre in uh, Australia and or Australian even, television. Yeah, or even in uh, the wonderful world of advertising. Yes. You know? <laughs> 
But obviously, but, coming to the UK, um, meeting Jerry at Century Twenty One, we know that there was a big call out for actors who could perform convincing American accents because the target market initially for a lot of Jerry's shows was the United States because that's where the money was. So making these television programs on an industrial estate in Slough, does it, it's, a, it's a far cry from the United States. So somehow for his production, he's got to assemble a cast of mm. people who can perform with and, and throw their accents and create some really interesting characters with convincing American accents. Yeah, well, what happened was I was working at the Bristol Old Vic Company. Thank God I'd got in there. And that was through contacts from the theatre school in Montreal. A lady that was married to the one of the directors of the school, Anne Morrish, who you would have seen in uh, various British television series, um, very kindly sort of mentored me and, and said, look... Um, there's this um, audition that's going to happen for the Bristol Ovic. Anyway, she got me in there, which was fantastic. And while I was there, I heard about this call for American accents. When I worked in Canada, I had to sound like a Canadian, eh? So I had to learn how to say out and about the house and all that kind of stuff there with a Canadian accent. So what I did was I made an audition tape for Jerry in which I did the Canadian and then an American accent, various American accents, you know, like someone out west and all that kind of stuff, you know. And um, I also threw in an Australian accent. And he was curious. He was absolutely curious. He said, when I said to him, why did you pick my tape? He said, I have to tell you, I've never heard... I very rarely have heard uh, of an American who can do an Australian accent. So <laughs> I, I was I was fascinated. I, I wanted to see who this was. And <laughs> I say, I, I, when I first started working for him, um, I had to keep the American accent going. And then after a while, I, I dropped it. And, and that was when he went, oh, oh. <laughs> anyway. And I told him the story, and he he said, that's how you got in. So I did. So what was the first production that you actually worked on at Century 21? It was a film called Thunderbird 6. Right. And um, there were amazing people in it, you know. It had quite a stellar very, cast, didn't it? Yes, all very respected British older actors that I was absolutely fascinated to see and hear doing their stuff and all the rest of it. We did it at uh, Debenham in a huge studio. I mean, it was ginormous. And we, we were in the corner, very, very, very little corner bit. It was absolutely fascinating for a start because that's where Corda had started uh, his films and all the rest of it. And then we were taken off to this amazing, very, very liquor-oriented lunch in, in Debenham itself at, at this fantastic pub. And uh, so I got to speak to John Carson. Um, oh, God. And Jeffrey Keane was in it, wasn't he, as well? Yeah, yes. Some very respected actors and all the rest of it. Uh, absolutely. I had a wonderful day, you know. You also had a fellow Australian in there as well, Keith Alexander, and um, also... Keith came later. And Keith. Yeah. Keith. And Jeremy Wilkin? Yeah. Yes. Also Bud Tingwell. Uh, ah, who, yes. Who was uh, probably... It started with Bud earlier than it did with Keith. And uh, I, I can't remember if Keith was in the Captain Scarlet series, but he was certainly in the series that came after that, which was Joe Ninety. And, and you um, did a lot of voices in that too, didn't you? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We we worked it out once amongst us. We did something like 56 different voices. 
<laughs> That's incredible. It's almost like an actor then working in rep, really, isn't it? But but yeah. all, uh, like yeah. the cast of a puppet show, as it yeah. as it transpires onto the screen. But really, it's almost like a small company there, working in yeah. rep, taking on all these different roles and different characters in all in very quick succession. Jerry was terrific. He was very loyal, and if you did, if you produced what he needed he would stick to you like glue so if you could do you know if i had to do a a, a voice that sounded like someone from africa uh, so i could do that uh, if it had to be done or you know if you if you're doing uh, irish or something like that you know it was, it was no problem at all so it would, we would do we would do these things you know we would say well he said, oh, this is a different character here. This is so-and-so. And I say, well, where did he come from? Well, I think, oh, I don't know. He could probably come from Bristol. Bristol, right, my chair. We'll go right into it. So if he gave you a hint about, or he'd say, well, try try Bristol. And you'd try it. And he'd say, no, I don't think that's right. Can you give me some woman from off north? You know, that sort of thing. So I would do that, you know. And... Uh, my gran came from north, so we were Mancunian, you know. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was amazing. It just happened to be there was a whole bunch of us who, who had this ability um, to just do all these different accents, you know. If we look at Captain Magenta from the Captain Scarlet series, although he wasn't one of the, what I would describe as a frontline character, he was there sort of every now and again. He was described as being, by Colonel White, the chief in command, as being too eager, too eager, far too eager. And here's a little clip of uh, Captain Magenta now at his best. I've got it. I've got it. Colonel White, I've got it. What the? I know what the Mistrons are going to do. It's here in the paper. He came to me in a flash. I don't know why we didn't think of it before. It's so obvious now, so obvious. This is Colonel White. Is that you, Captain Magenta? Yes, sir. I'm trying to tell you Slow that... Slow down, Captain, and tell me clearly and slowly what you have found. I was checking the papers for a lead when I noticed that General Tiempo, commander of the Western Region World Defense, is in London for an operation. Get to the point, Captain. Well, that's it, Colonel. General Tiempo is an obvious target for the Misterons. And tiempo in Spanish means time. Kill time. Kill tiempo. <laughs> there we are. There's uh, Captain Magenta getting all oh, excitable. Colonel White, what the? But there's Captain Magenta solving the mystery of that episode. It's called Operation Time. Quite an interesting voice there, Gary. Yeah, well, he... he... Um, as you say, it has to be had to be high and very very excited and very on top of it and all that kind of stuff, um, which was uh, fantastic and good. And Jerry or uh, whoever was directing on the day would give you these little touches, what they wanted, that sort of thing. Colonel White was a wonderful British, actually South African uh, actor very distinguished who'd lost his arm in the second world war and um had this marvelous voice you know and yes. we all sort of went oh my god you know so <laughs> That's you donald gray well the second clip we've got of captain magenta is from an episode called attack on cloud base now jerry i remember described this episode as a a black comedy it was made right near to the end of the series and uh captain magenta was trying to count unidentified flying objects. Colonel White! Colonel White! Oh, no. I'm still trying to count them all, Colonel. But one of them is on top of us. Range 400 yards. At that range and with their size, we have visual contact. Thank you, Captain Magenta. Thank you, sir. Colonel, sir. Uh, seven, uh, seven, uh, oh, uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, uh ten, uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, look at that, 19, 20, uh, tw 21, oh, look at the size of this one, 25, oh! Too eager, far too eager. 
I've got to say that's one of one of my favourites because it's a black comedy. It turns out all to right. be a dream. So Captain uh, Magenta didn't meet his demise in reality. But uh, uh, that's oh, a fantastic uh, voice there, Gary. You know, really conveys the mood, I think, of that, that particular story, Attack on Cloud Base. Really, really funny. Very, very different, though, to the role that you played in The Secret Service. Now, this is where you sort of became one of the leading characters of a Jerry Anderson Century 21 series. Yes, and it was wonderful working with Stanley Unwin, who... Um played the lead and had that wonderful language that he does. I can't remember how it went. <laughs> the point was he used to bewilder the, the villains of the piece by launching into this, this stuff. But he also had some wonderful stories because he'd been an engineer for the BBC. And later on, I worked with Frankie Howard in Canada, of all places, when I returned to Canada. And... Um, <laughs> Stanley had some extraordinary stories about uh, being an engineer in the Middle East and working with Frankie Howard. That was funny enough, but he also used to do a big takeoff of someone who said, um, he used to do a children's show and said, now children, throw your balls into the air. And he'd do this whole thing, you see, and have us all falling around. Yeah, no, he was great. It was lovely to work with a real vaudevillian at heart, really. Mm. And the scripts were excellent. And Dave Lane, who was the director, young and uh, at that time, yes, like all of us, and really full of enthusiasm. And sadly, it was canned by Lou, Lou Grade, because he felt um, people wouldn't understand or wouldn't, wouldn't get on to the joyful sort of comedy that came out of the, the, what, Stanley, what Stanley was doing, you know. And the fact that I was about six inches high and in his Gladstone bag a lot of the time, you know, she was going somewhere. Now, Matthew, I want you to go and find out what's happening here and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, sir, I get out and, you know, totter off and find out what was going on and come back and, oh, fix things, I don't know. It's so hard to remember now. We also had Sylvia Anderson there as the third voice as Mrs. Appleby, the housekeeper. And she yeah. always described Matthew as bone idle. <laughs> yes, well, that, that was always the sub sort of uh, uh, plot that was going on all the time, you know. So to, to, to make out that he really was bone idle, that in actual fact was doing whoa, special things. You know. Yes, while being miniaturised at the same time. And like you say, uh, Lou Gray didn't like the series because of the Unwinnies, so that was a bit of a slidey mo on the wetty gripper then, that series. I think it was 13 eps. It yeah. was 13. Yeah. Have you seen any of the productions since you uh, worked on them? I just wondered if you've ever looked back at any of these shows to, to see what you think of them now. Tell you the truth, I haven't had the opportunity, but now we have YouTube... I think I would be able to go and have a look at some of them, you know. Mm. It's amazing what's on YouTube, <laughs> really. Yeah. Before you uh, left for Canada, though, there was one more Jerry Anderson production that you did actually work on. And here's an, another little clip I'm going to play to you. This is this is from UFO. Kamala, good morning. Colonel Alec Freeman. Ah, Colonel. I'd like to congratulate you and your team, Hermala. This looks like the breakthrough we've been waiting for. Oh, not my team, Colonel. Uh, may I introduce our chief designer, Virginia Lake? How do you do, Colonel? Well, for the first time in my career, I wish I was flying subsonic aircraft. Uh, the trip would take that much longer. Uh, just in case anyone's interested, uh, I'm Phil Wade. Oh, how are you? Well, looks like you're the answer to all our prayers. Would you like to see the Utronic equipment, Colonel? I think your equipment is fabulous, but uh, I am familiar with it. Really? Yes. That's a bit risque, isn't it, for 1969? Oh, yes. uh, yeah. Just yeah. if anyone's interested, I'm Phil Wade. Well, George Sewell's character wasn't really. After shaking your hand on the aircraft, he uh, was more, far more interested in uh, sitting chatting with Wanda Ventham. Of course, and who can blame him? No, I... Uh, it was it was a little thing that 
Jerry threw in, um, I said to him, I was going back to Canada. And he said, oh, oh, he said, I'm, I'm doing the pilot for um, this new series, UFO, and I'd like you to be in it. And I said, Jerry, I, 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 I'm, unfortunately, I've made all the arrangements and everything, and we're going back. Uh, and he said, look, um, do a little guest appearance for me. <laughs> And so I did, and I, I went out, and it was just half a day's shoot, not even a day, out at, uh, oh, Twickenham? Oh, I can't remember, one I of the big I think studios. it was uh, MGM Boreham Wood. Probably, yes, yes. probably Boreham Wood, yeah. So um, uh, <laughs> I went out, and I, I did this thing, and I was very impressed, you know. It was highly, you know, it was... Uh, probably the well it was it was the beginning of jerry moving from puppets to uh, on camera stuff and so therefore it was the full um, movie camera with uh, special bell ringing and uh, all of that kind of stuff i'd already done the dirty dozen uh, which was another big film mm. so i had some idea of what was going on but it was always impressive Anyway, he was so sweet and so nice, and I, I was thrilled to be able to just do that as a sort of passing, passing gesture to England, really. Yeah, so the pilot of UFO there, and then you uh, moved again to Canada. Now, I yes. heard a little story about uh, your appearance in UFO, and you can, you can tell me whether or not this is true. I yeah. do believe that uh, a while later your daughter... Gemma, who we know is yeah. a horror fiction writer, we haven't mentioned her yet. She got to see the um, yourself in uh, UFO, really yes. like the back of your head in in the plane. After waiting eagerly to see her dad in this wonderful production, she turned to you afterwards and said, "Is that it?" <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> yes, I heard said. this story. I can't get it out of my mind, and it just yeah, makes me just... chuckle every time I think about it. Yeah, <laughs> she said, "Oh, I had my friends over. You know, they were all going to see. You know, here's your dad, and here he's going to be on that film. Oh, wow. Okay, so they sat there and they watched, and they saw this, and they saw this scene, and they said, "Well, like her, is that it?" My God, that's it? You know, so there it was. Um, yes, that made me feel even more like a handbag. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened when got... then when you went back to Canada? Well, all kinds of things. I mean, it was, um, it was a really great time for Canadian theatre right across the country. So I got involved in that. And um, my got into doing voiceovers a lot, which was very helpful and very, thank God, gave us a bit of money to live by. A lot of radio, because I started out in radio after I'd left theatre school at the very beginning with some amazing people in Montreal. Sadly, I never worked with Christopher Plummer. I'd love to have. I worked with John Collicott's. Um, yes. and a few other people that went to England and back. Um, but the essential best bit that I remember was doing a show called The Frankie Howard Show. I'd seen Frankie in England, and I admired, I was amazed at what he used to do, you know, how he used to address the camera. Oh, isn't it terrible? Oh, and his face would shake and all that kind of stuff. And he'd be very funny. And um, anyway, uh, I got to do an entire series with him, but I had to be uh, a Canadian. I, I My character was Harden I Otterby, which, is, as the name suggests, is play on words. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> about halfway through, he kept saying to me, uh, do you know someone, you know, that can give me a dinner? Uh, I'd love to have a dinner. Dennis and I, uh, that was his boyfriend and his agent, uh, would, would love to have home cooking. You know, home cooking would be really nice. I said, well, well, I, you know, I, I, the lady I'm staying here at her house, she would be thrilled to have you. Yes, yes. Um, and I said, there's a young couple who have been along several times to, to the uh, previews of 
the, the show we used to do with a, a live audience and they would love to have you they're great fans so we went there anyway as the evening wore on and we were drinking a uh, very nice red wine mr files got tireder and tireder and because i had said to these people before he arrived awfully sorry but i'm going to have to talk with a canadian accent throughout the whole thing tonight because when i appear with these people for the cbc they can't believe that i'm anything else but canadian eh so anyway three quarters of the way through i said oh hell frankie i said i can't keep it up anymore i'm sorry he said oh oh an australian oh <laughs> so there we go <laughs> You did eventually return to Australia because I yeah. saw you in the 1980s. It must have been around 1987-ish, 1988. A programme I was watching on BBC One at the time was, of course, Neighbours. It became quite a big hit here oh, right. in the yeah. UK. And up popped a familiar face one day and I thought, I know that face and I know that voice. That's Gary yeah. Files. He's playing Uncle Tom Ramsey. He's actually uncle to Kylie Minogue's character, Charlene. Yeah, and I work with Guy Pearce and I work with uh, Jason Donovan and, um, oh God, a whole bunch of people at that point. You know, some of the careers have taken off quite in a big way now, haven't mm. they? Oh, God, yes. Well, especially yeah. Kylie. I mean, she's an international global singing superstar. Yeah, she is. Yeah. And Guy has done some absolutely wonderful film work. Mm. And Jason is, has been very good, too. Um, his dad is a great a friend of mine. Terence, um, yes. Yeah, Terry, Terry Donovan. Yeah. I, we get together, myself, Terry, and uh, another Terry called Terry Norris, you probably wouldn't know but you would have seen in many Australian films and television series and things like that and we all meet and have a coffee and uh, whinge <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad you mentioned Australian television programs because I just happen to be and to let the Fanderson fans know this as well I'm quite a big fan of uh, Australian soap operas they showed quite a lot of them here in the 80s Neighbours the Young Doctors, yeah. A Country yes. Practice, Sons and Daughters, and another one here, which I've got, would you believe, on DVD, it's called Prisoner. And uh, I, uh, I'm <laughs> not sure, but I've got a funny feeling that you might have appeared in that somewhere too. I did indeed. I was this husband who was beaten up by the very tough lady who was in the series, uh, Leslie. Oh, God. Leslie, Very nice. Leslie Baker. Was it Leslie right. Baker? Yeah, she was a sweet uh, yes. actress. I mean, uh, people, people, of course, because they're actors, uh, are very rarely the characters that they play, simply because a villainous actor, is, a villainous character is more interesting for the actor than, you know, the house and garden, bland, bland sort of thing. Mm. Well, this anyway. was a series, wasn't it, about a women's prison? So yeah, I, I yeah. guess that and the people we're really focusing on are are the women. Yeah. And um, of course, yes, yeah. I'm. Uh, the storyline is coming back to me now. You were you were this the husband? Of course, she towered over you, didn't she, Leslie? Well, she used to beat me up. Um, this this was a wonderful turnaround. You know, you hear so much about family violence where. Mm. The man beats the woman and all the rest of it. Well, in my case, it was the woman beats the man. <laughs> and I remember coming to London on one of my visits and I got into a taxi and a fellow said, Hello, look who's here. Oh, oh, are you all right? She hasn't been beating you up again, has she? And this was in uh, London. Somebody yeah. recognised you from that programme in London. Prisoner. Yeah, from Prisoner. What was it called here uh, in England? It was called Prisoner different... Cell Block H. So right, as it yeah. wasn't confused with the prisoner with Patrick McGowan, I think was the reasoning oh, behind right. that, that the title okay. was changed. But that was uh, Prisoner was shot at in Melbourne, I do believe. Is it the Channel yeah. Channel Ten Studios? Uh, yeah, in those days it was called Channel O. I don't know why, but that's how it was. Yes, um, yes. I I had no idea that it it was such a hit, an extraordinary hit. 
and the people can remember, you know, from way back. Well, it was the same with neighbours. I, I came to England to sort of just have a see if I wanted to work in England again at that particular period. And I ended up doing a very serious show uh, for the BBC uh, playing a judge. And it was called uh, The Shadow of the Noose. I remember that, some, yes. Yeah, had some very serious actors in it. Anyway, I I had no idea how extraordinarily successful Neighbours was and, until I, I used to try and... I was living at um, Kilburn High Road, I think, something like that, and I used to go across into a kind of uh, shopping plaza where there was a, a red telephone box that I could phone my beloved in Australia and um, my partner, Janina, and uh, <laughs> I, I used to reverse the call, you know, so that it would go through various <laughs> things and all the rest of it. And pe- girls used to paste their faces on the on the glass of the box where you'd be in the middle of talking to, to her and, oh, my God, what, what? People would be... <laughs> around the box you know so it's have to say well i have to stop now i have to go now i have to go now (laughs) shut up get out the box and run across the plaza and also being recognized by the english cricket team on the plane when we were going from australia to london mike gatting was the captain in those days anyway he came down the plane came down the aisle and said is is this who I think this is? And then the, the, the guy in customs who said, hello, you're coming back, are you? <laughs> I said, no, I've just arrived. You know, oh, dear. Never mind. There you go. Fantastic stuff and a fantastic career. Now, we're in the middle of a pandemic situation now, uh, Gary. What's it been like for you personally just in the last year of lockdown? And how's it been for the acting profession down under well, in generally? Yeah, it's it's been disastrous for the actors because um, we work on short-term contracts and the government decided that unless you had a long-term contract they couldn't support you they could put you on a thing called job seeker where i think you were paid a basic amount of money well to a great extent i'm retired now i do do voiceovers and i write scripts and things like that so i'm okay but for your average actor in australia it's been a disaster and of course, all kinds of uh, shoots, television, film had to stop. Theatre was just devastated. Um, all kinds of theatres just cut off. Tours that were about to happen finished. And so all of these actors and actresses are, are thrown out of work and are desperate, you know, and have had to scramble. Being in Tasmania, which is the little island under Australia, the moment all of this started to happen, it was started in Australia by a cruise ship called the Ruby Princess, which arrived into Sydney. But already the people who ran the ship knew that the COVID-19 virus was already on the ship. They knew that. So a scandal has erupted because they convinced the New South Wales government that it was okay that 2,000 people got off the ship and went back to their homes all over Australia and one lot came to the north part of Tasmania and immediately we had COVID infection up there and several people died. We had the first deaths in Australia. So our Premier, who's a bit of a bulldog, said that's it, everything's closed, no one from anywhere in the, on the mainland can come anywhere near us uh, so all the borders were shut they went immediately into severe lockdown and they dealt with the the covid and and stopped it totally so before the rest of australia we started being normal again we didn't have to wear masks especially in the south part of the island the north part of the island was where the infections were 
and um, we learned about appropriate distancing and washing of the hands and things disappearing from the supermarket, like toilet paper. 3,000 tonnes of toilet paper disappeared. What were they doing with the toilet paper? You know, and pasta and beans and, and tin things. You know, it was kind of like, oh, my God, what's happening? <laughs> However, most of us stayed pretty sane and eventually stuff returned. But the only stuff that was getting in was food and, and necessities from the mainland, which had to come through a special way of doing the shipping. They had to be examined very carefully or fly, they fly in and they'd be absolutely isolated in the airport. And that's how it's really made us actually very gratified that we're pretty much back to normal here in Tasmania. Well, back here in the UK, just as we speak now, things are actually opening up again this week, including our theatres. And uh, I was helping to promote a show just last week. And I, I think there's going to be a new normal to this, Gary. The actors who I spoke to were, were isolating in their own dressing rooms. They weren't in shared dressing rooms at all. Uh, they had, you know, brick wall between the two that I spoke to and, and I think going forward there's plays and uh, even the television productions are even going to be shot very differently to keep people apart and to try and keep people safe it's it's a very strange sort of normal it is yeah and and there's a similar thing happening with shooting here in Australia um, you have a special I won't say a medical doctor but you have a medical person who's there making sure that the covid uh, protocols are followed and uh, they're very very strict about that <laughs> they even went so far at one point where someone had to kiss someone and um, the very obvious rubber <laughs> person appeared and was kissed by someone and they decided no that's going too far you know kissing mm. a, a rubber person please you know we can return with a little, you know, they would, they would test you beforehand, you know, how they put that temperature thing yes. on your forehead. A bit of a change yeah. from the days of Century 21 where I don't think they even had any kind of health and safety policies in place then. And I know that you were invited once, along with the other voice cast, to go and actually watch them filming explosions. Did they give you a hard hat? No. <laughs> no, they were all very casual about the whole thing. Would you like to come out to Slough and see us? Uh, the beginning of the uh, sort of the sky. It's going to be a magnificent piece of work. Oh yes, okay. So we all came out, all the cast, and there was this amazing, wonderful model set up on this big, huge like structure. So it was like looking at detailed models of London or some major city, you know. Anyway. Principally, we were supposed to concentrate on a car park. It was a sort of circular car park thing. Anyway, um, they said, now, very soon, we are going to do the explosions. Okay. So we all braced ourselves, and they did the countdown, big countdown, and then, path. That was it. That was it. This little thing went, path, And bits flew all over the place, and we thought, oh, wow. <laughs> What do we know? You know, I suppose it'll be all right. Anyway, we all got outside having a chuckle. And then we went to the opening after we'd recorded all the rest of it and been finished at the Columbia Theatre right in the West End. And we were driven there in limousine and we had a red carpet and we went in and the theatre was full of, uh, I guess, most people that were connected to Lou Grade and various other people. And we had a special place to sit and all the rest of it. And there's this huge screen at the end. And that was the size of what was shown because they were shooting on film in those days. So this sequence started. And the music was incredible. And then there was this explosion and Everything was a noise was tremendous and pieces slowly flew up and flew everywhere. What we hadn't realized was the cameras were speedy. They were going on, you know, I don't know how many thousand feet per second. I don't know. 
but it slows everything right down. So it was like watching someone's toenails being blown off. You know, it was so <laughs> sad. So, oh, it's horrible. Oh, my God. And look at the, the car park falling and crashing and bonging. Amazing noises, amazing sound, yeah. So we thought, yes, Jerry knows what he's doing. He does indeed, and uh, a great tribute to him, I think, on this uh, podcast today. Before you ask, is that it, in the words of your daughter? <laughs> and I've got to oh. say, uh, we've kept you up very, very late tonight, and I've got to say I'm very, very grateful for staying up so late to chat to me here in the UK because we know that you're nine hours ahead and you've probably got to rush away and you probably want to get to bed now. Take a good cup of cocoa with you, but I want to say big thanks. Gary Files, actor, also writer, just all-round good person. Thanks for joining me today on Thunderson Podcast number nine. You're very welcome, Ros. Take care. Stay safe. Anderson is the world's only official appreciation society for the work of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, with its own club magazine, exclusive merchandise and more. If you'd like more information, please see our website at fanderson.org.uk. That's it for the podcast for now, but do let us know if there are any features you'd like covered in future editions. I've been Ros Connors. Stay safe. This has been a Fanderson copyright production. (laughs) 